and welcome to the weekly Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This week, I'm joined by Mark Wallace, executive editor of Conservative Home and columnist for the I newspaper, and Marie Leconte, freelance journalist, formerly of BuzzFeed and very, very good on Twitter, I have to say. Welcome to you both. Um, Just a reminder of how our format works. What we try and do at Unheard is not necessarily chase the stories that are really big in the news cycle. We try and highlight things which we think are um, important, but perhaps slightly underreported. So in that vein, Marie, can I ask you to kick off with your underreported story? Um, Absolutely. So this study came out, I think it was earlier this week or last week, um, by Duke University, Princeton and NYU that showed that basically um, echo chambers on social media might not sort of necessarily be as bad as we thought they were. So the way that the study they did effectively, so they got some Democrats and uh, Republicans who, you know, so like quite heavy Twitter users and made them follow a bot that, you know, for Republicans um, retweeted quite a lot of Democrat stuff and vice versa. Um, and so follow them for a month and at the end kind of, you know, saw like in what way they kind of, you know, um, opinions had changed. And turned out that actually um, Republicans who followed Democrats um, for a month um, then ended up basically becoming more conservative as a result, like substantially more conservative as a result of having done that. And the Democrats uh, were slightly more liberal, like a lot less than the um, Republicans, but still. And so it kind of showed that actually, you know, because I... I think the received wisdom on this is effectively, you know, you should follow people from across the political spectrum. Echo chambers are bad. You shouldn't sort of, you know, bury yourself, you know, around sort of like people who all agree with you. And the way to stop the kind of, you know, growing polarisation of politics is actually to sort of, you know, make sure we all listen to each other. Like Clearly, apparently, it's not as simple as that. And Mark, what do you think about this? Because, I mean, you obviously are very prolific um, on Twitter and social media um, from, from the right as a Conservative. Do you think that the echo chamber argument is a really big problem in British politics? I mean, I think there is an issue there, clearly. It, 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 even as Marie says, when, when you expose people to, to views of the other side, they, ent- they also entrench further. I suppose the question is whether we think there's a kind of virtuous kind of entrenchment. You know, if you have a very strongly held opinion based on knowing all about the other side and, and really disliking what they stand for, or do you have a very entrenched opinion based on not knowing anything about them but just kind of talk, talking to your mates who already agree with you? Um, to that extent, I'm not sure what difference there is. What I find really interesting is the way in which it seems to have different, very different effects culturally on different platforms mm-hmm. in the way that you will find so even within platforms you'll find some parts of twitter where people will kind of spar in a very uh, a fairly fairly polite and engaged and engaged and engaging way from one side of politics to another another part of so it which bit of twitter is this i haven't <laughs> quite kind of figured this I, I, one out I, I, I can think of about half a dozen people who probably do that uh, you, you guys are both on that list but um but equally, there are other parts of Twitter that are an absolute sewer or some platforms within, say, Facebook, for example. I find it interesting the difference I have to pursue in terms of running my Facebook page compared to my Twitter account, partially in terms of what kind of content engages people. Actually, Facebook seems to just reward people being far more partisan. Um, but equally, I have to moderate a lot more uh, in Facebook because for some reason people feel like they're in their lounge so they can say much worse things. That's really interesting because I don't engage that much in Facebook. I engage in sort of personal things, not that much politics, but it doesn't feel like people are holding back on Twitter, does it? Um, 
No, that's true. But also, I mean, I, I'd agree with Mark that I think there's definitely a kind of split between people with whom you can go, actually, you know, I disagree with you on absolutely everything, but A, you're clearly quite interesting, and B, actually, I can challenge you if I want, and we'll have quite an interesting chat out of it. Like, what I would say about Facebook is I think especially, like, just the formats of, you know, someone posting a status or a link or whatever, is just that absolute never-ending thing, and I think, you know, you don't have the character limit either. And I'm sure we've all seen sort of, you know, arguments on Facebook, which end up being sort of like, you know, someone posting a thousand words saying, you know, and this is why you're literally Hitler. And then, you know, so sort of like people who are just friends with one of the people on the thread, sort of like coming in and being like, what is this? And you're just like, Jesus Christ. And so at least I feel like, you know, with Twitter, I guess, A, the character limit probably helps slightly. Oh, totally. And B, you can sort of find your corners and kind of stay in them, which is what I do. But those Um, people on Facebook, it's like they're the same people that stand up. You know, when you're chairing a panel and they say things like, not really a question, more a statement, (laughs) and your heart just sinks and they sort of take a novella out. They're like a mini sort of speech. I feel that um, on Facebook and Twitter and and all these social media platforms, things are so polarised. Do you not think it's kind of naive to think that people can sort of chat to each other in a calm, reasonable way, reach some sort of consensus and end up in a kumbaya place where they've both sort of, you know, changed their views? Um, I think it sort of depends on the people. And it it is the same way that, let's say, I don't know, if I'm in the pub with quite a close friend of mine and it turns out we disagree on something, then I'm a lot more likely to have actually quite a thoughtful, long chat where, you know, we might come out of it still disagreeing with each other, but at least what I think, you know, we'll both have learned something and listened to each other. That's entirely different from saying some drunk bloke at a party going, and this is why you're wrong. And if like the internet is very much the same, you're not necessarily always going to listen to people you disagree with when they're people you don't know, people who have just barreled into your mentions to tell you you're wrong. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the issue with social media as well, of like, again, in, in real life, you would not have someone down the street saying, I disagree with you. I think you're, you know, I think you're stupid because of what you think. And no one would go, oh, hang on, please tell me more about why you think I'm wrong, random person on the street. And that random person will then follow you home and shout outside your window <laughs> for like most of the night going, you're stupid and ugly and fat and I hate you. But enough about my Twitter timeline. Um, but Mark, as somebody who's obviously you're connected um, with the, the right of politics, how much do you think, well, we know, I mean, Labour's actually using social media quite effectively. How effective are mainstream political parties being at using the sort of hyper-partisan echo chambers on social media to their advantage? Well, it's fair to say that the Conservative Party still hasn't fully overcome its um, distinct failings to prepare for its own surprise general election on this front. Six months before the election, they were laying off people on their social media team because an election was so far away, which suggests that they hadn't planned very well. But also, they don't really get that this is a a year-round, 24-7 Activity. I'd just now. like to make a note, Theresa has announced that she's going on a walking holiday, so anything could happen. <laughs> Gulp. Yeah, I'm a, a carefully enjoying your breath, which I'll be holding until next Tuesday afternoon now. Uh, I think part, part of it is that actually social media lends itself to a certain extent to opposition. And actually, if you look back at when Gordon Brown was in power, when the blogosphere was kind of taking off... Uh, it was dominated by centre-right, broadly kind of Tory-ish outlets, Conservative Home, 
Mosquito Forks, Ian Dale's Diary. That was the big political uh, blogosphere at the time. And part of that was about the, uh, the sometimes the anger of opposition, a bit more of the freedom of opposition. Um, but also, of course, because when you're in government, because when you've been in government for a decade, an awful lot of your talent and, 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 and arguments has been either tied up in, in office as advisors and so on, uh, or it's been burned through and, and has left the field. So to a certain extent, this is it, it's a bad opposition. It's quite hard for ministers who need to go through various forms of sign-off on various different topics to produce something prompt and interesting uh, in vaguely the right week. And Marie, how effective do you think Labour and Team Corbyn have been at utilising social media? They've been very good at it. And, you know, and I think it's been especially really interesting when you look at the fact that in the kind of early Corbyn era, the Corbyn comms team was mostly sort of like, you know, absolutely hopeless and useless. Uh, you know, partly I'm dealing with the press, but I think just in general. And I'm still not entirely sure when or how that happened. I'd be quite interested in reading something about it. But I think especially sort of, you know, from around early last year, they, they became this kind of, you know, unstoppable machine. And even, you know, using things like Snapchat filters and, you know, all those, like, even like games, I think they did, the momentum videos are particularly good. But I do think that also what Labour has for them at the moment is that, um, that, that there are so many supporters, especially younger ones, who will just tweet. I think that, you know, the Tories can be as good as they want on social media, so like from, let's say, CCHQ, but if they don't have those thousands of people willing to basically tweet the party line of their own accord, then... They're you know, participants, it's not... aren't they? They're part of, like, the Labour social media team just by the fact that they're so committed. I mean, one of the things I think is very interesting is take Prime Minister's questions, which has arguably become, like, a complete sort of snore fest, but the Labour team will just use a bit to clip and it will go viral. And that's just, that's that's the sole sort of purpose of PMQs now. Absolutely. And it's ridiculous, frankly, that Conservatives complain about Jeremy Corbyn doing this. It's quite fun to spot the bits where he kind of draws himself up into a slightly different stance, has a slightly <laughs> different voice, a slightly different tone of voice, and then speaks for 52 seconds on a particular like the topic. Klaxon. <laughs> exactly. And then he, then he can move back on to the usual kind of boring content. The video is happening. But it is silly that Conservatives complain about this. It's a perfectly sensible tactic. If you're complaining, it's because you're, uh, you feel you're being outdone on it. And, and you know, they're there is a measure of that. I also think part of the way that Labour have improved so much and so fast, I don't think they're as good as they think they are in the same way. I don't think the toys are quite as bad as they sometimes think they are. But the way in which Labour's improved, ironically, has been by taking a kind of Tory-ish free market approach to this. They've got quite chaotic, anarchic process by which there's kind of a free market in ideas. They hold hackathons. They farm out a lot of this to third-party groups. Um, the Tories, by by contrast, have taken a Corbynite approach and do this kind of command and control attempt, and it doesn't they've work. Nationalized it. <laughs> they've nationalised it. Exactly, they've nationalised it, and um, uh, it, and it hasn't worked. Well, thank you very much for that, Marie. It was a very interesting discussion. Now, Mark, over to you. Tell us about your underreported story of the week. So this is a little bit counterintuitive because obviously migration as a whole as a topic is endlessly reported, endlessly discussed. Nigel Farage says we can't talk about migration anymore, then talks about it every other week on Question Time, etc., etc. But one thing I think is really interesting is we talk an awful lot about immigration to the UK, the potential impact of it. What we don't really consider very much is the impact of mass emigration, what the impact is on countries where migrant populations are moving out, particularly young people. And I think it's really interesting to see recently that Italy's youth emigration has continued to rise, whereas, say, Spain and Portugal, it's reportedly falling. It's mm. still quite high. But in Italy, in particular, the scale of this, I think, is absolutely fascinating. I was looking at the 
the Financial Times reported recently that 5.4 million Italians now live outside Italy, almost 10% of the population. One and a half uh, million of those have left since 2008, so since the crash. Um, the 18 to 44-year-old population of Italy has fallen by 6% since 2013, even as the, wide, the overall population has risen slightly. Um, and the vast majority of Italians who register in the UK to work, um, a number that suggests that actually Italy's records might be slightly understating things, um, 77% of them are under the age of 34. So this is specifically a youth problem. I think it's really interesting to think about what the impact might be on countries where, you, where a large portion of a whole generation not just move from one town to another, as we do in the UK, as, as I did moving from Tyneside down to London, a lot of people do, but actually leaving your country entirely to have to build uh, a new life somewhere else for the purposes of work. And where are, for example, these young Italians, where are they going? Well, it's quite interesting. Quite a lot of them are coming to the UK. Um, quite a lot appear to be going to Germany. Um, I don't I don't have the, the detailed stats uh, to hand in their exact destinations, but a lot of it is about getting better compensated graduate work in particular. And actually, we know that Italy's got quite a large youth unemployment problem, but mm-hmm. actually it ha- also has a very big underemployment problem. So even if you do manage to get a job, the chances are it will be something that uh, you don't feel is commensurate to your qualifications or provides uh, the hours or, or, or the pay that you might hope for. And what, what's also fascinating, of course, that Italy's economy isn't actually doing that badly in, histor- in historic terms, but it, it's still being soaked up by other, par- other parts of the age profile. Actually, young, a lot of young people do feel that they have no, no future there. And is there any evidence that the Italian government is worried about this or trying to pull any public policy levers to, to sort of stop this brain drain? And are they worried about, you know, who's going to pay for, you know, t- taxation and pensions and all that kind of thing? Well, I mean, who's going to pay for pensions in Italy has been a, a, an issue even before the financial crisis due, due to kind of somewhat unwise policies that went on for some years of just lowering the, the pension age as a, even as the, the population itself got older. That That's happily now stopped and there have been some signs of kind of belt tightening uh, on that front. But there was a, you know, a lot of lip service paid to this as an issue. But I think you can test whether that whether any of that's worked by looking at what happened at the last election. You know, when you saw the main parties, the former main parties, completely demolished. Yeah. Uh, Renzi and Berlusconi both completely sidelined and replaced by uh, what was the Liga Nord, uh, obviously particularly in the north of the country on, on the right, and uh, Movimento Cinque Stelle, uh, particularly doing well in the south. Both part of those parties are picking up uh, votes for a radical position from the young. So that includes the young on the right, young young voting on the radical right. So mm. there's a clear sign that the, the previous series of administrations failed. And there's miserably. that sort of disillusionment. Now, Marie, as somebody who has emigrated from your home country to ours, and we are very delighted to have you in the bosom of our country. Um, wh- wh- why did you, you, you left France, and um, why did you want to, to, to leave? Oh, um, well, I guess it was mostly so I came here to study at first, and I guess on a sort of like personal note, it was basically because I wanted to become a journalist. And in France, it's kind of, you basically have to do a degree in something else, then you have to go to a grande école, which is, you know, basically you can only go do a master's in about sort of like six different um, journalism schools in France, otherwise, you, you, you know, you'll never become a journalist. So I thought that it'd basically be easier to go to London and do a journalism degree straight away, because I knew what I wanted to do. Um, but also, I guess the reason why I stayed is, in fairness, it is a lot easier in London to get a job. And it's, you know, when I see that I graduated, didn't even do a master's. And admittedly, I got really lucky. But, you know, I got I mean, I, I got a part time job in journalism um, weeks after graduating when I see most of my friends, not even in journalism, you know, in other areas in Paris, for example, 
um, you know, were unemployed for ages before managing to find a job because, you know, because the jobs market in France is what it is. And I do think that London is famous, I think, among young Europeans for being the place you go and you can just sort of like arrive, you know, buy your one where you're a starter kit, sort of like, you know, find a sort of like terrible flat somewhere and then you can basically find a job really quickly. And I, you know, so I, I actually um, can understand why other sort of like young people are doing this and kind of moving away. And what what do we think of this? I mean, we've I mean we've talked about it happening. Do we think it's a good thing or or a bad thing? Do you think it's your own personal aspirations in your life, or you know, should you have some loyalty to 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 stay you know in your in your country? What 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 do we think about it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I think I'm a bit torn. And like, it's not to be entirely honest, my area of expertise. But I do seem to remember sort of like several Eastern European EU members. Um, actually kind of complaining about freedom of movement because they're like, everyone, everyone is leaving us. You know, yeah. we have this massive brain drain and how do you expect us to, you know, make the economy better and like kind of grow as a country if basically all our young people leave the second they turn 18 and yeah. go to the more prosperous bit of the EU. And they become like a sort of left behind part of Europe. No, exactly. And I do think so. I'm half Moroccan and this is a problem Morocco has as well. But basically... So like especially sort of like middle class kids will go to Europe to study and then think, well, actually, you know, might as well stay here. And so actually that's why the country is not necessarily sort of like getting better, because, again, yeah, there's such a kind of consistent brain drain of people leaving to get qualifications and then just not coming back. Mm. And then but, you know, what what can be done about that? What can I mean, we sort of see it in our own country as well. I mean, I, I came down from Glasgow to London. You came down from the northeast. I mean, would you be enticed to go back up to the northeast? I like a lot of kind of internal, um, n- not exactly expats, but internal migrants to London. I think have um, a lot of nostalgia for my home. And in my mind, you know, I've lived in in London since two thousand five. In my mind, Tyneside is still my home with a capital H. I'm now married to a Londoner. I've got a, got, a, got a, a little boy down in London. That's obviously working in around Westminster. There's not much prospect of me. Um, managing to go home. But it, it, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel a bit guilty about that to a certain extent. And it is interesting, I think, what, what it does to the question of a social contract. What happens within the UK is one thing you can see is the resentment people feel about, quote, bloody London. Yeah. Which I think this is part of that. I think um, the idea that people have some difficulty um, adjusting to the idea of how their society is changing and that's within a country where there are financial transfers so if your kids do go off to London and the South East and, and, and earn more money then at least they're paying tax within the same country and I think it is understandable why there's why there's quite a lot of frustration and anger the other question is of course what happens when that means you have a large portion of your vote outside the country and quite a lot of you know Italian voters have, have have a vote back in their back in their parliament in the yeah. same way. I, I think I'm right in saying that French voters you have MPs who represent expatriates. We do, yes. No, I, I have an MP in France, which is yeah, <laughs> quite odd. But there you go. It makes you sound really stylish. <laughs> oh yeah, I just 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 nip back to my just... other MP exactly. Um, so you know, I, it, it's a huge challenge as to what you what, what on earth you can possibly do about it, particularly within say as you're saying say Poland for example where you have a lot a large amount of concern at a political level but it's very difficult for any politician to sit down with an individual and say you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have been able to act on those aspirations yeah and you we, you know we forbid you from from chasing your dreams and trying to make a, a, a better life for yourself it's very hard I mean one of the things politically in Scotland as well that that we found was that um particularly for labor MPs and I think this is why we paid a very heavy price uh in in sort of recent elections was that 
if you were a talented politician in Scotland, you immediately came to Westminster. The idea of, of kind of staying and serving your local communities in Scotland was sort of seen as, no, 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 you, you didn't do that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Labour did lose so much support, actually. There was a sort of a cultural um, kind of snobbery. You had to come down to, to London. But I think politically, that is kind of pivoting back a bit um, post-Brexit and lots of other things as well. Was there, there was, I seem to remember reading some suggestions there was also a bit of a gap between, say, Labour and the SNP in terms of how they how, how they placed the Scottish Parliament in their careers. So if you're in the SNP, you wanted to serve in the Scottish Parliament ab- above all things. If you're in yeah. Labour, perhaps there was some suggestion that not all of the MSPs were quite... No, absolutely, absolutely. And like I said, I think we did pay a very, very heavy price for that. Well, look, that was um, a fascinating discussion. Now, we are going to move on to my favourite section, which is Heroes and villains. So we've got two heroes um, to discuss um, and they both have the same uh, uh, name. I'm going to start with you, Mark. Who is your hero of the week? So my hero, which I don't think I've ever said before, is Donald Tusk this week. <laughs> so um, can I just say that again, just so we can have that on the... <laughs> Don- Donald Tusk is my hero. There you go. That, 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 that's the I agree with Nick moment here. Somebody, you know, as you know, as, as a lifelong Brexiteer, I'm not a massive fan naturally of the EU institutions, but this is someone who stood up to when Jean-Claude Juncker was writing congratulations to Putin, best of... We wish you every success, he he said, as everyone else was, was sick uh, in, in various corners of the room. Um... Donald Tusk actually managed to turn the EU's um, position on Putin, on the Salisbury attack, and I think helped to open the door for various EU nations to join in these expulsions of Russian spies. So fair play to him. It's amazing what actually having lived under uh, the dominance of the Kremlin can, uh, over part of your life can, can do to your perspective. <laughs> Marie, would you agree with that? Um, yes, I would. And, you know, obviously as someone who's actually reasonably fond of EU institutions um, I'm you know kind of en- enjoying Mark saying this but and I agree and I feel you know the, the Juncker letter was incredible um, and you know I don't always think that you know Juncker deserves all the flack he gets from the UK press but this was definitely one of the instances where you know my, my jaw drops as well so no I agree that you know what Tusk did was was the right thing to do and you know and it clearly worked yeah and it, it, it again it looked you know sort of kind of international interest rather than something sort of factional or, or petty so no I think I think that's very well deserved now I've got quite um a controversial person that I just want to mention very quickly kind of in the same vein as 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 your thing. Um so I'm no fan of the Donald, but I do think he should be given a bit of credit for the fact that it does look and it's early days, but it looks like there could be significant movement with North Korea. I thought the meeting uh, this week of China and North Korea was absolutely fascinating. So I think it remains to be seen what happens, but I do think and I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth. I do think Donald Trump has catalyzed some really important diplomatic movement in that region. Yeah, and you see this with, say, the flack that John Bolton, his, his latest appointee, has got for being a warmonger, etc. But it is uncomfortable for various people to admit, I think, that the policy of kind of softly, softly broad appeasement towards North Korea led them to having the bomb in the end. And, and actually... Uh, you know, Trump often acts like a mad dog, but in this particular case, it seems to be having an effect. I do love the idea that um, Kim Jong Un is sort of poodling out to see the world, a bit like Paddington Bear with his sort of like, armoured train. train. And Marie, um, you have uh, a very important hero that you wanted to talk about as well. Um, yes, it's uh, Sadiq Khan who um, campaigned against uh, War Boys' uh, release on parole. War Boys, who was a cab driver who raped several women. 
um, and, you know, was on the cusp of sort of, you know, being let out of prison early and the victims had not even been told it was going on, you know, and it was an absolutely sort of like awful, awful case. Um, and Sadiq did sort of like, you know, campaign tirelessly to make sure that didn't happen and it is not happening. And also actually in sort of, I guess, keeping up with the theme of this week, I'd like to say that The Sun probably also needs to be my hero of the week because it was very much their campaign as well. And I'm, I'm not always The Sun's biggest fan, but I will also, you know, in the spirits of um, of honesty, give them this, that one. I love that we're all busting out of our echo chambers here. It's very good. We, we deserve a big pat on the back. And we're now going to move on to our villains of the week. Mark, So who's been doing your head in this week? Back into entirely predictable territory, I'm going to say Tony Blair has been doing my head in this week. However, in some ways, he gives me a little bit of hope as a Brexiteer. You know, every time he speaks out, I kind of think it, it alienates a whole bunch of extra uh, voters to, to, to stick to their decision to support Brexit. But I find it absolutely amazing that this guy who once had this magic touch, that he, he just instinctively knew where the British public kind of were uh, on all sorts of different things, and he could, he could turn national politics has this amazing ability that he now just runs around kind of punching campaigns that he agrees with in the groin over and over again without even realising that he's doing that kind of damage. And, um, you know, the patronising way he's talking about trying, still trying to fail to implement the basic outcome of that referendum leaves me agog. But, I mean, he, he also, I suspect, helps the Corbyn campaign on by criticising them. What, what, what's your view on that, Marie? Um, I actually completely agree. And I, and I don't get, when was it? I think it was a few months ago, actually, Tony Blair gave that interview and said, you know, I do, I do realise I'm probably not, not the best person to be speaking about this. And it's like, this is where he should have stopped. That should have been the one sentence. And that was that. Cause, um, and actually, I, um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, as Mark said, it's not just about Brexit. One of my favourite stories from the Labour leadership contest in 2015 was when a source who worked for the Corbyn campaign showed me the figures. And basically, every single time um, Tony Blair had an intervention against Corbyn, you could see the amount of donations for the Corbyn campaign massively going up. Um, and there were, yeah, there's kind of like several spikes. And so they were like, you know, if Tony wants to speak out against us even more, that'd be great. So I don't get, I don't get how none of the people around him basically have not, not managed to just have a chat and just be like, Tony, look, like, you know, sit down. <laughs> Mate, we need to talk. Um, or do you want to go on a long holiday? You know, it's lovely in Barbados at this time of the year. Do you want to do, <laughs> do that for like you six to top seven your months? Tan. Now, speaking of uh, the Labour Party, uh, Marie, who is your villain of the week? I'd say, I mean, in, in a crowded field, because I think it's it's not been a kind of great week for the Labour Party, but I'd say that Christine Shawcroft um, do you want to just would explain have to be... who she is Ooh. for our listeners. Um, yeah, so she has just left her position at Labour HQ for um, trying to reinstate um, Labour member who'd posted uh, a Holocaust denying uh, sort of like post on Facebook. And so th- those emails got leaked. And, um, and she was actually... Um, the head of disputes um, for the for the Labour Party. So she was the person that was going to be kind of overseeing um, who was in or out. Now, just for legal, you know, f- fairness, the, 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 the person in question has issued a statement saying that he says that these are fake posts. So it's just important to sort of factor that in. But clearly, there is a huge problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party this week. There is, and I think, you know, the, the other jaw-dropping moment this week, I think, was the... Valerie Valls, who is the shadow um, leader of the Commons, of doing this radio interview and uh, saying, so clearly basically did not know what the word anti-Semitism meant because she said, oh, well, you know, Labour's absolutely steeped in anti-Semitism and, you know, we're just a very, like, committed anti-Semitic party, 
which is such an incredible thing. So I couldn't even bring myself to listen to it. I read the transcript and I couldn't click on the play button. How can you be, you know, how can you A, just get to middle age and not know what anti-Semitism means, but especially as a Labour MP and especially as a Labour MP in this context? I think it has been a kind of, it has been an appalling week for the Labour Party. And do you think there is... Do you think there's a way out of this? Do you think that it will actually materially affect, for example, the local elections? I don't know if it'll affect the local elections. To a certain extent, it's quite depressing when you see this answer come out from some Corbynite circles. Well, keep banging this drum, it's not going to work. Well, actually, if something is just fundamentally wrong, even even evil... It doesn't matter whether it has an electoral impact or not. It's not the purpose. It's a to principle talk, talk, thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a principle thing. It's about our civilization, um, you know, our, our standards and morals as a society. Um, it may well have an impact, I think, in some quarters. Um, but in, in larger part, it's just absolutely horrifying to see the degree to which this has crept back into our society, but also into, main, in, in, into mainstream politics. I mean, there is clearly a problem um, in the in the Labour Party. But I think there is, unfortunately, quite a lot of racism around across all political, like a lot of political parties. The Conservatives um, have got themselves into a bit of trouble with some local um, election leaflets. I mean, do you think the Conservatives shouldn't be crowing over this, but also should be like, you know, looking at its own house and checking things are in order as well? Indeed, I think the leaflet you're referring to is the one in uh, Havering from the for the local elections coming up, which has been withdrawn now. But on at the behest of CCHQ, it has to be said, the centre of the party had to intervene on that. I think I'm right in saying one of the councillors involved claims that the party headquarters had signed it off in advance yeah. as well, which is also very I think quite a lot of them have been delivered now as well, which is the... Which yes, is the problem, in, and you in, can't really rescind them. Indeed, but, but you know, that, that's obviously how news of that, that content in that particular leaflet got out. You know, all parties have some problems with this, in the, in, partially in the nature of being uh, organisations made up of uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people, de- de- depending on them, partially because, unfortunately, politics in, in, in a variety of cases attracts people who are, frankly, a bit nuts, uh, <laughs> often, often, for the be- often for the better, but apart sometimes... Apart from us three, apart from us three. We, we, let's be honest. Oh, yeah, uh, all right, okay. but, uh, they are completely nuts. Co- co- it, it is a naturally somewhat weird thing to be very, very active in. However... Um, all parties have to be scrutinised themselves on this, but I don't think it's a question of of crowing. It is quite disturbing. I agree to see that the reaction to say the the protest on Monday, organised by the Jewish Leadership Council and the Board of Deputies, met with a load of responses saying these people are Tories. Why why are Labour MPs going out lining up with Tories to 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 be partisan about this? Equally. I've just seen two thousand uh, likes and a thousand signatures given on Facebook in, in just one of the large pro Corbyn groups to a letter that says this protest was getting uh, extra publicity due to the, you know, the media, the disproportionate media influence of the people involved. These anti-Semitic tropes are so widespread now, and um, I, I think it's a. But sh- just shifting it, you know, like absolutely, and I, I have been, you know, I'm absolutely horrified about what's been happening within the the Labour Party. But I suppose. Do you think, you know, somebody who, you know, would advise, you know, openly the the Conservative to be super vigilant about all forms of racism and xenophobia as well on the right uh, as well? Certainly. And, and you know, in, in fairness, there, there was rightly a strong response to that havering leaflet from people outside the Conservative Party as well as people uh, w- within it. Um, the Conservatives made great hay at the start of this year of having a new behavior, standard of behaviour, a new code for candidates and activists, which uh, they, expect, they, they asked the Labour Party to sign up to. 
But they made so they made a big fuss about that, completely rightly. But they must now be seen to implement it. They must now be seen to stand by it. They cannot. Um, it, it, not only would it harm themselves, but it would harm the entire fight against racism in our society if they then allowed this to actually be proven to be something that was just a partisan opportunity. Well, I think we can all agree in a lather of um, you know nice bipartisan agreement that I think all parties have got to take this seriously. Thank you so much to my guests, Marie Leconte and Mark Wallace. I've been Aisha Hazarika. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.